A man goes into a barber shop. So this is obviously not me in this story. But a man goes into a barber shop um, to get his hair done, to get his beard trimmed, all this kind of stuff. And he's, he's sitting there with the barber, and the barber says something to the effect, he brings up a, a religious conversation, and says something to the effect of, well, I just, I just don't believe there is a God. And so the customer sitting there in the chair said, well, why do you not believe that there's a God? And the barber goes on to say, well, I just I can't believe that there's a God if there's so much suffering have you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that argument? There can't be a God if there's, if there's so much suffering. So the customer sitting there, obviously the man has sharp, pointy objects in his hand, so he didn't want to get into a, a big discussion with him or a, a big argument with him at the time, so he just kind of sat there quietly. And the, the barber goes on to explain his reasoning and his rationale for all of this. And so the customer just sits there. Well, after a while of the conversation, the customer looks outside and he sees a, a homeless guy. And the homeless guy has tattered hair. It's, it's all bunched together, just, just untrimmed, unkempt, all of these things. And, and the customer thinks to himself, this is a great lesson. And, and so he looks to the barber and he says, hey, I just want you to know that I've been listening to you and you said you don't believe that there's a God, but I just want you to know that I don't believe that barbers exist. And so the barber goes, wait. What are you talking about? I, I clearly exist. I'm right here. I'm, I'm... And he goes, no, I don't believe barbers exist because look outside. Look outside of this man out here. He has unkempt hair. His, his hair's not trimmed. It's not cut. And then the barber looks at him and goes, well, well, of course his hair's not kept because he hasn't come in to see me. And then the man sitting there goes, exactly. Exactly. Just because suffering exists does not nullify or invalidate the presence of a living God who is still sovereignly in control. And Exodus 1 kicks us off right there. Exodus 1 starts off with a bang of screaming about this God who does truly exist, but suffering also simultaneously exists. And so if you've ever wondered, how could suffering exist simultaneously with a sovereign God? Or does suffering invalidate the sovereignty of God? Welcome to Safe Haven Church, and welcome to Exodus 1. Um, I think today, again, if God is gracious to us, what Andrew and these guys just led us through, we'll see that there is a God who shines in the midst of shadows. And so it's hope for all of us. It's hope for all of us, especially in a world today where there's just so much suffering. Um, well, let's look at this text together. This text is going to show us both luxury and slavery are under God's sovereign control. A life of luxury, a life of slavery, none of these things invalidate the presence of a living, breathing God. And so as we dive into this, Genesis, I mean, it's Genesis. I promise you, church, we're not back in Genesis. We're going on to Exodus. We're done with Genesis. Uh, but Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, we're going to jump into this whole different generation. A different generation begins. goes on to say this in Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation... But the people of Israel were fruitful 
And they increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. A whole new generation. Everything we've studied throughout Genesis is gone now and it is a brand new generation that's being birthed here in Exodus as the Israelites find themselves in Egypt. A couple of things I want to see about this because I don't think we can rightly understand suffering until we at least contemplate prosperity. And so prosperity is certainly seen here in this generational swap from one generation to the other. But let's look at this. First thing I want to see about prosperity is this. Prosperity is indeed linked to individuals by God's decree. The nation of Israel prospered in this scenario because God's hand was on Joseph. That's just true. The entire population prospered because of God's hand being on this one person. So I think that's something we can rightly understand about prosperity is that from time to time, God just simply chooses to put His hand on people and prosper them. And I want to say this, because I think a lot of times in churches, it's really easy to badmouth people who are prosperous. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Sometimes God just prospers you. Now listen, for all of us who were hoping to win the one point whatever billion dollar lottery that came out last week, God sovereignly chose not to prosper us in this time. But God sometimes just does choose to prosper. And if you are currently a believer who God's prospering, that's no reason to hang your head in shame. It's no reason to go, oh, woe woe is me. God is prospering me. I don't see that. I think there are just some people who invest things the right way or uh, work hard or whatever it is, and God just, for some season, just chooses to prosper them. And in this moment, that's the thing I think we can see about this. The whole nation of Israel is being blessed because of one man, Joseph. God had his hand on Joseph. Everything he touched turned to gold, and therefore everybody around him got a piece of that proverbial gold, if you will. Number two about prosperity. Prosperity is linked, although sometimes to individuals, it's linked to seasons by God's grace. Just because you're in a season of prosperity now doesn't mean you'll always be in a season of prosperity. Can I get an amen? This is where we all feel it, right? We, we, um, most of us in this season of life in Northport, Alabama, aren't seeing the the big abundance, and that's okay. Um, it comes in seasons. This nation has gone from rags, literally, to riches. And as we continue through Exodus, guess where they're going to go f- also back to? Rags. They go from rags to riches, and they're going to head right back to rags. And it's just seasonal. God just chooses to do what He wants to do in the area of prosperity. And then finally, I would just ultimately say this. So therefore, prosperity is by God's decree. Now, if, if you want to interchange the word decree, allow, ordain, all of those things, hey, we can, we can join together. But the overarching point is just that none of this was outside of God's knowledge and none of this was outside of God's control. God was not shocked with anything that was happening to the nation of Israel in terms of prosperity and or suffering. Now, that's a couple of things that I think that are true about prosperity. Now, let's look at a couple of mistakes I think we can get out of this. I think we can see this in this text. 
It's a mistake to think that Joseph earned prosperity. That he was so holy, that he was so righteous, that he did things the right way, so therefore he was sinless or something like this. And I think a lot of times we get that notion, if I can be good enough, then God will prosper me financially. That's just not true. Joseph, alone in the fact that he exploited a starving people to prosper Pharaoh's household during the season of uh, the famine, just that alone shows us that he wasn't in and of himself righteous, that he didn't earn this. That, and I think it's a mistake sometimes to think that if I can get good enough, if I can be righteous enough, and then God will pour out a blessing on me. Well, here's the deal. Let me ask you the question. How righteous do you got to be to get there? Because Jesus was perfect, yet he still endured what? Suffering. Yeah, so let's be real careful. Uh, and this is obviously subtle on TV called the prosperity gospel. So it's a mistake to go there. It's also a mistake to think that no one else in the nation was seeking the Lord. Other people were definitely seeking the Lord. But for some reason, God just chose to pour out on to Jacob. So what I'm saying is this. Praise the Lord for praying grandmothers that are dirt poor that nobody ever recognizes, but the Lord applauds. Let's be careful about that. We can have warped understanding of prosperity. I am incredibly thankful for my grandmother, who quite literally all she had was a couple of chairs in her Bible, and she spent more time in her Bible than she did the chairs. Did the world know her? No. Did she have huge amounts of money? No, she lived in government housing that was a one-bedroom apartment. But praise the Lord for her and the impact she had through praying for me and countless other people. And I'm sure you have those same stories in your life. So let's be careful about that. It is correct to strive to be a person of prosperity, but it's also correct to humbly accept it if you're not in a season of prosperity. And in doing so, both cases, our call, prosperity or not, is to pursue the Lord. And I think we can see that in this text. Nonetheless, it's a new generation. They've grown from 70 people now to thousands of people in the Exodus. Even though they're not in the promised land, God continues to bless them. So we've got this different generation, and now we're going to have a different king. If we had thematic music, this is the moment where it should go boom, 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 boom. So now we're going to have a new king that pops up. Exodus chapter 1, 8 through 10. Let's look at this new king. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. I want to pause here real fast. <clears throat> if, if, if you're a little bit lost and going, okay, I'm not sure I understand this story. Well, as a church, we've journeyed all the way through Exodus. Every, I mean, through Genesis. Every single sermon is on the website. Go catch it, catch back up, and that will get you into understanding why this new king is so big, so important, changes everything, okay? So now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Verse 9. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. That's a word we don't use enough. Shrewdly. Let's use that today at some point. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape the land. Pause button. 
all propaganda begins by demonizing somebody as a threat who are not threats. These are goat herders who live in the back country of Kentucky. <laughs> all right? They are not a threat at all. Yet propaganda breaks out. The new king needs a threat. So he says, hey, how about those people who live, those hillbillies? We'll make them the threat. Okay, this is propaganda. And so he goes on to say this. If a war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and they'll fight against us and they will escape from the land. So with this new king, the lesson we can see in this is that not all landlords are equal. If you got a good landlord, praise the Lord. If you got a bad one, praise the Lord. <laughs> it just is what it is. And so there's a new landlord in town. Uh, the pharaohs have been Hykos pharaohs of Egypt, meaning at one point they had been refugees themselves. So therefore, as those type of pharaoh leaders, they embraced the Israelites as refugees. This makes sense, right? Well, they were conquered by nationalist, national-born Egyptian pharaohs. And so now you've got people who love nothing but Egypt. Egypt first, Egypt last, Egypt in the middle, Egypt everything. And so there's a swap in the pharaohs, and this changes everything. So what I think we can also see through this is too, most landlords are indeed after their own profit. <laughs> They're glad you're there as long as you profit them. And this is what we see in this moment. So the people of Israel have gone from favor. Now they're headed towards disgrace. And the reason they're headed towards disgrace is because the Egyptian pharaoh wants to protect his portfolio. He wants his portfolio to be shining. And if it means to get the Israelites out and to evict them or to crush them or to use them for slavery, then do whatever you can do to build your portfolio. Not all landlords are equal. But finally, just like prosperity is by God's decree, I think in this text we can see landlords are by God's decree. Whether you love your landlord or whether you don't love your landlord, Landlords are also by God's decree. Daniel chapter 2 says something very interesting. It's not on the screen, but I want to read it to you. It says this, Blessed be the name of the God, of our God, forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and insight and might. He changes time and He changes seasons. He removes kings and He sets up kings. All things are ultimately under God's control. So I hope you're getting a taste now. Now we're about to dive into the meat of the text for the day. I think already in this different generation, we can see something about prosperity being under God's decree, suffering being under God's decree, this different king is under God's decree. We're learning something big about who God is and how we fit under His control, if you will. And therein lies the rub, doesn't it? When things goes wacky, it's because we don't want to be under His control. Right? And then finally, as we see our third thing today, a different generation, a different king, but the same old suffering. It's going to repeat itself once again. So let's look at this. Chapter 1, verses 11 through 22, and this is all of the text we'll cover today. Therefore... 
They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephra and the other named Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and why have you let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pause button there. Conflicting absolutes, ideal absolutes, Duckworth... It's, it, there's a lot there. There's, there's all kind of things going on here. And I don't want to get into the minutia, but honestly in this text, there's a lot going on. Um, do they lie to protect the women or do they murder to obey the king? There's just a lot. There is a lot there. And I implore your small groups to chew through that, write a book, figure it out, and sell it, and we will make those millions, Okay. You'll find yourself prosperous if you can answer that question. There's just a lot going on there. But nonetheless, that's there in the text. But that's not where I want to hang out. Here's where I want to hang out. Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. Why? And the people multiplied and they grew very well. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let Every daughter live. And that's where we'll wrap up our text today. Now, what can we see through this little section here? Kind of tying all these things together. I think we can see this. A biblical view of God's blessing can indeed include oppression. And often does. So if you've ever been in the midst of suffering, of oppression, of of heartache, of pain, and you begin to ask the question, why is God not blessing me? Maybe the answer is He actually is blessing you through your pain and suffering and oppression. A biblical view can include this in the midst of, indeed, blessing. I guess what I'm saying is, maybe if anything through this text, we just need to redefine the terms. So, catch this. The covenant blessing that we studied all the way through Genesis was this, that was passed down from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. The covenant blessing was, I will do what with you? I will make of you a little nation. I will make of you a what? A great nation. So much that your offspring will be the exact same number as what? The stars in the sky. I will bless you with that kind of multiplication. Now catch this. 
the oppression that they received was the very means that God used to multiply them from 70 to thousands. Do you see that? That was the blessing. That's what caused them to multiply. In other words, if there was no oppression, then we don't have any reason to believe that there would be mass multiplication. But the text clearly says, when they were oppressed, that was the means by which God multiplied them. Get that, church. Get that. Sometimes I think we look at suffering and we go, woe is me, rather than go, Thank you, Lord, for the suffering you're letting me endure. Did you catch that, church? I think that's squarely in the text. And so, three takeaways. God's blessing doesn't always feel like smiles and rainbows and unicorns and lucky charms. God's blessing doesn't always feel like that. Number two, God's blessing doesn't always keep a favorable Pharaoh in power. If God loved me, then my boss who left that was awesome wouldn't have been replaced by this bad person. Right? We can't go there. We can't let our brains go there. God's blessing doesn't always keep what we want in mind. God's blessing always keep what God wants in mind. And then finally this. A warped view of God's blessing is that it will always include earthly sunshine. That's just a warped view of God's blessing. If your view of God's blessing always includes sunshine, then I will take it back to what I mentioned before. If that's your view of God's blessing, what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Him? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. Somebody finish it for me. But the Son of Man has no place even to lay His head. What do you do with Jesus? Jesus, perfect, seamless, definitely blessed of God. The chesed love. There's a Hebrew word for us as I spit everywhere. The chesed love, the blessing of God. Surely poured out on Jesus, yet endured all things and all forms of vile suffering. That doesn't mean God was absent. It just means God was doing something bigger than we could have ever dreamed or imagined through a means by which we would have never chosen. And this is what I think we see in this text. Simply put, church, a fallen world will never look like heaven. But praise the Lord, heaven will never look like this fallen world. So, God ordains hardships, allows hardships, whatever term you want to use. I have one that I would choose to use. But that's for another day. God ordains hardships often because He's causing growth through that hardship more than anything else. Pharaoh is saying, less Hebrews. (laughs) Less Hebrews. No more Hebrews. We don't need any more little Hebrew pitter-patting feet running around. And then God says, no, 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 no. More Hebrews. More Hebrews. And no matter what you do, 
I'm going to churn out more Hebrews. The midwives thing, there's a lot going on there. Again, there's just a lot. But the point was, they feared God. They feared God even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of confusion, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of hard choices, they feared God. And God uses this. What's the point? Look at that verse again. That verse said this, Because the Hebrew midwives feared God, He gave them families. There is an if-then in Scripture. Had somebody call me this week and go, Hold on, Troy, hold on. Is there a real human choice? Is there a real human consequence? Is there a blessing that is predicated on whether or not we are obedient? And I would say, yes. I don't think that's theologically untrue. Can God do anything He wants to do despite us? 100%. But at times and seasons, does He choose to bless us if we are obedient? Then this occurs. Yes. That's just equally true. I guess I could say it another way. Sometimes I think we miss out on the blessings of God because we're not pursuing obedience but pursuing what we want. That's simultaneously true in Scripture. And so I think we see this. <laughs> he gives them families. The Hebrew midwives were usually relegated to being midwives because they were barren. So they found themselves as midwives helping everybody else because they were barren. But in this moment, because of their obedience, God indeed gives them families. In other words, everybody now is getting on the birthing train and ain't nobody getting off. And so it was hardship they had to endure that unlocked the door for continued families. So all of this to say, suffering could be eliminated by God. But church, sometimes He ordains it as the means by which to produce fruit in your life that otherwise would not be produced. I think that's the text for the day. That's a lot there. A lot to chew on, right? So today, I hope you you process through that. I hope Exodus 1 speaks to you. But before the band comes back up, what are some takeaways? Just boil it down into a nutshell. What are... What are some takeaways? As, as any good um, pastor should do, we'll have seven takeaways because that's obviously the number of completion and God's chosen number. Um, and it's also just randomly how it ended up today. I don't know. I might have stretched one or two into multiplied them to get to seven, but let's go with it anyway. Seven things I think we can see about suffering through this text. Number one is this. Suffering reminds us that sin makes pleasurable promises it cannot fulfill. And in sin, we go, oh, this is what I need. This is what I want. This is da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And sin promises something, but suffering reminds us that no matter how you want that, how much you want that pleasure, there's always suffering around the corner because this is the world we live in. There's always suffering. So sin promises, oh, I can eliminate suffering. It's just not true. Don't buy the lie. Do not buy that lie. There's always suffering around because this world's fallen. It's broken. And so earth is simply a fallen reminder. And suffering constantly reminds us that this place is not our home. It's not what we were made for. We're just pilgrims passing through. 
Now I want to start singing Beulah Land, right? <laughs> Beulah Land. But I will not. Number two. Number two, suffering reminds us that pleasure is not even the goal for believers. Suffering reminds us that, that pleasure is not even our goal. Pleasure is a great thing, but it's not our goal. It's not our chief end. And if left to my own vices, I'll, you know I'll be transparent and honest with you. Some of you guys are like, Troy, you're a little too transparent, man. Back the transparent bus up a little bit, put some shade on that thing. No, I'm, we will always be transparent at Safe Haven. Here's, here, I'm going to be honest with you. If left to my own vices, I would choose hedonism every day straight to the pit of hell. I would. And suffering is that constant reminder of, hey, Troy, whoa, back the bus up. There's something better than what you're chasing on this spinning ball. And suffering, it reminds us of that. Number three, suffering forces us back to God when we've been distracted. (laughs) Egypt believes in... The rain gods, the sun gods, the moon gods, the cloud gods, the the grass gods, and this has indeed infected the nation of Israel. Now we're gonna we're not there yet, but we'll get there as we continue to go through the book. This has infected them, and rubbing on them has tarnished them a little bit, and this suffering will be the means by which God pulls them back from their distraction. It'll be the thing that does it. And so suffering forces us back to God when we've been distracted. Number four. Suffering office often gets us back to uh, where God wants us to be. And right there you go, so that's the one you multiplied, Troy. <laughs> that's the one that sounds exactly the same as the one before. And maybe it is a little stretch, but here's the point I want to put out in this one. Church, remember, they're supposed to go as a part of the covenant blessing to have a multiplied people um, as numerous as the stars, and they're also to go to a specific land, the promised land. And where are they not? They're not in the promised land. They're not there. And the entire point of Exodus, the book, is that he's going to take these people from slavery and bring them back to redemption. And suffering is the means by which he's going to do this. That's where God is going to, uh, what God is going to do to get them back to the place that he wants them to be. In other words, they're fat and happy on all that Egypt has to offer. And God's going to take some of that fat and happiness away to show them what's true and better, what they need more than the plush lands of the Nile. In other words, prosperity has softened them. Anybody ever been there? Everything's awesome. Everything's wonderful. Prosperity's flooding you. And all of a sudden, in that prosperity, we get a little soft towards the Lord, don't we? And it's not that we don't, we're like, God, I don't need you, but through prosperity, a lot of times we'll get softened. And affliction will be the very means that God's going to wake them up, wake up, and get them back to where they need to be. Number five, suffering exposes whether we love ourselves more than God. Suffering exposes that. As was the case of the Hebrew midwives. And in this moment, the Hebrew midwives had to choose, will we obey the king and preserve our life Or will we risk disobeying the king for God's greater good, even if it means we get crushed? And in this moment, it exposed whether they love the Lord more than they love themselves. And suffering will do that. It's going to push you to that. Now, let's keep going. Number six. 
Suffering is often preparing you not for you, but to help minister to someone else who needs you. And I think that's a good way to look at suffering a lot of times in our lives. Not only what is God doing for me, but look beyond that, that a lot of times God uses your suffering, the pain that you're in, what you're experiencing, what you're going through, not for you, but for someone else. And I, as a pastor, man, I, I, get, to, I get to see this happen all the time, which is wicked cool. Wicked's probably the wrong word to use. Righteous cool, okay? We'll go with that one. It's righteous cool, just this past week. And it happens, I'm telling you, it happens all the time. And I wish I could just say things, but I have to suck some of them in this, this past week. A guy wants to meet, so we go to Bojangles, we hang out, because, I mean, what better to meet over than a pork chop biscuit? <laughs> um, so, so we're sitting there, we're talking, and he's explaining a situation in his life, a, a suffering that he's going through, and it involves family, and it's just, there's just a lot there. And, and he finally gets to the point and goes, Phew, Troy, I feel like I just dumped a lot on you. And then I took a bite of the pork chop biscuit and went, that was a lot. <laughs> Brother, I ain't going to lie to you, that was a lot. And he goes, well, what, what do I do? Cool moment. And it happens all the time. I just looked at him and I said this. I said, brother, I don't know what you're going through. And he goes, no, no, I just explained everything to you. Where where were you at? Were you drunk on uh, fried pork chop? What's going on? And I said, no, no, I heard everything you said. I said, but brother, listen, I can't identify with what you're specifically going through. But let me tell you this other guy in the church who is far better equipped, who has gone exactly through what you've gone through. This week, they got together four days later, and the Lord used that time in a, man, a fantastic way. That's what church family's for. To shepherd one another as iron sharpens iron. And in your suffering, don't be shocked if you get a call from a bald guy That goes, hey, I know you've been through this. This person has been through this. I can't identify. It seems like the Lord has prepared you to be their pastor in this situation. The Lord is preparing you to shepherd and to pastor others through your present pain now. He's not wasting any of it, church. He's growing you. And then finally, as we wrap it up, number seven. The time may very well come when the only thing we can do as Christians is to stand firm in a posture that trusts that God is using our suffering for redemptive purposes. America is not immune at all from losing the freedom that we so thoroughly enjoy right now. The time may come very well when we lose every bit of freedom that we have, where we may be like the nation of Israel, and somebody comes in and says, you will do this, and suffering is preparing us to go, whether you tell me to do this or not, I must obey the Lord, and all I can do is stand firm and resolute, and I will stand firm. And then trust that God's going to do what He does. I think we can learn from that text. That from the text. All of this, I hope, 
maybe corrects a misinterpretation that a lot of times is spewed. It's a misinterpretation of a famous passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And that passage says this, that the Lord will never tempt you beyond what you can bear. And so a lot of times people will take that passage and they'll say things like this, Oh, oh, dear friend, like you're, in, you're hurting, you're in suffering, <laughs> you're in pain. And somebody goes, Oh, well, you know, I know you're in pain, but the Lord will never give you more than you can handle. Right? Anybody ever got that advice? That is garbage. (laughs) That is not what that text is saying. He will certainly give you more than you can handle. He will certainly give you more than you can bear. The promise of that text is that He'll never give you any temptation that you can't handle. That He will also be with in the midst with you and provide a way out. That's the promise of the Scripture. Not that you're immune from suffering, but that in your suffering, He'll be with you, He'll be for you, He'll be near you, He will hug you, and He will grow you right through the midst of the muck and the mire. That's the promise we have in our Lord. So, all of that to say, suffering a lot of times doesn't have any answers. On this side of eternity. But it does carry with it an invitation. An invitation into a mystery to either grow more in the Lord or grow more dependent upon your own wisdom, intellect, and ability. And this one will mess you up every time. It does carry with it that. So... It provides, I guess, a profound pathway to experience God in a way like you never have before. Are you embracing your suffering, church? Or, maybe today you're like, I don't have any suffering. Well, you probably know somebody that does. And maybe God's preparing you through Exodus 1 to minister to them greatly today. Today. As the band comes back up, the last thing I would say about suffering as we learn through Exodus 1, is man, this certainly helps us understand Jesus way better. Way better. It helps us appreciate Jesus. It helps us worship Jesus, who, though though He had never sinned, became sin. Though He had no grounds for suffering, endured suffering immensely for people who needed to be set free from the slavery of sin. And so today we rejoice. We rejoice that the Lord Jesus looked at the cup of wrath to be poured out in the garden. And he looked at suffering. He turned his head like a... I don't know if he turned his head or not. Now I'm just daydreaming. He looked at the cup and he goes, I don't want that. The fullness of the wrath of God. Like we stub our toe or step on a Lego and we're like, oh, indeed suffering. But he looked at real suffering. The fullness of the wrath of God. He goes, I don't want it. So much so that you'll remember in the garden, in contemplating drinking that suffering, began to sweat what? Say it. Somebody say it out loud. Blood. He began to sweat blood. 
Like, have you ever reached that point in suffering where you're sweating blood? He's sweating blood. I don't want that. And then the glorious final words. As he peered through the corridor of time, knowing redemption would occur if he drank it, said, But not my will, but yours be done, Lord. I'll drink it if it will produce freedom to a bunch of people who are enslaved to their sin so they can be released forevermore unto my righteousness. Praise be the Lord. The Word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Well, Lord, what a text. So, God, I'm sure there are people in this room who had a have a myriad of different things that they're suffering through. Maybe it's something with their children. Maybe it's something with their work. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a wealth issue. Maybe it's just a mental issue. Maybe it's a co-worker. Maybe it's their spouse. Maybe it's just purpose. Maybe they're angry at you, God. I a million different things I just trust that as we've gone through this text that it's just by the spirit you've just hopped around the room and to tie it all back together that you've peered into everyone's shadows and exposed that you can use any form of suffering for a greater good and ultimately your glory so maybe perspective today for some maybe healing for some Maybe this text is calling some people to repent right now for not trusting you in the midst of their suffering. Just God grow us as a church in our theology and doctrine of pain. And so God, as you've done that from an application standpoint, more importantly, I pray that if there's someone in here who does not trust, who has not trust in the finished suffering work of Christ, that they'll see His suffering greater today. That they'll see the pain He endured to set them free from their sin. God, I pray that You will overcome someone's resistance in this room and they'll bow the knee to You. They can't handle it. That They'll bow the knee to Your supremacy. That they'll repent of their sin. That they'll confess you as Lord. That they'll see you as the greater Joseph. As the greater Moses. As the one who doesn't just free us from a block of land and some acreage by the Nile. But sets us free unto mansions in glory forevermore. Staring at you face to face. Lord Jesus, save some today. And in all those, we worship you. We worship you.